This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. But uh, I really want to introduce the panel now. Um, We are very lucky today to have three very experienced emergency managers um, that are going to talk to you about leadership today. Um, The first is Craig Fugate. They probably needs no introduction. Um, Deeply experienced county emergency manager, um, the state of Florida director of emergency management, and then uh, finally the FEMA administrator under President Obama, I think, right? And, uh, you know, largely uh, credited for um, a big turnaround in FEMA during his tenure there, professionalizing FEMA, connecting it with the entire emergency management world outside of FEMA. Just a fantastic job. We're lucky to have him here. Uh, Pete Gaynor, uh, again, retired Marine, but deeply experienced emergency manager, uh, City of Providence, Rhode Island emergency manager, State of Rhode Island Director of Emergency Management, and then the FEMA Administrator. And maybe his biggest qualification for being on this panel is he was my boss for uh, our time in FEMA. And then we have Todd DeVoe, who's going to be moderating the event. Uh, very experienced in his own right. Started off as an EMT, I think, back in the day. And he he's almost one of those guys that what hasn't he done in the emergency management community? He's been a local emergency manager. Uh, He teaches extensively on the topic of emergency management. He's currently the president of IAEM Region 9. He's the host of EM Weekly, a podcast that many of you all may listen to. And he's also the director of emergency management for Titan Health and Security Technologies. So uh, I hope you enjoy the panel and swing by our booth, 336. Oh, good morning, everybody. Thank y'all for being here as we settle up here. Um, it's such a pleasure to be back here in New York City and the state where I grew up and the city that I love. As a kid, as a teenager, I may have spent way too much time here um, in the city due to my father's dismay, though. But uh, it's here in the state that I started my journey to emergency management. I started at a, uh, a fire department, a small fire department in upstate New York called Slingless Fire Protection District outside of Albany, New York. As a kid... I had the question, why? It always stayed in my head. I asked the question way, way too much. And I carry this on into my adulthood. And so the question is, why? Why are we here today? You see, emergency management leadership is changing. The old collateral duty, public safety guy who's trying to figure out what emergency management is is no longer acceptable. We're seeing a shift to professional emergency management those that are in tune with the profession and and the changes. They have a better understanding of the people and the communities that we serve. Emergency management leaders have to have an understanding of many more things. Budgeting, project management, environmental issues, and much more. It's a lot more involved and a lot more complicated today. I've had the pleasure of serving as an emergency manager at the local level, at colleges and universities, and now as an academic. 
And I teach at the University of Irvine in California, University of Applied Research and Development, and I'm also at Coastline College. And one of the things I've seen is the students that are coming out of these programs, they're amazing. You know, they're, they're pushing the boundaries of what emergency management is. They truly are. They're seeing what it can be and what it ought to be. They're using the principles of emergency management to also look at social issues such as homelessness and climate change. And these are things that are really pushing the boundaries of what we are today as a society. Emergency management now is working at all levels of government, all levels of government to include corrections, schools, public works, things like this that normally we don't think of emergency managers. And it's not just public agencies either. We're seeing emergency management fill in the roles in private businesses as well, such as, you know, Titan HST, where I'm at. Uh, you have uh, Tesla, Amazon, Airbnb, Netflix, Disney, Uber, and uh, Facebook, or I guess we call it Meta now. Whether we call it business continuity or crisis management, it all depends on the principles of emergency management. And EMs are helping organizations keep their clients and their, uh, their businesses safe. And we're seeing this given the peace of mind so these businesses can focus on what they do well. And, and it's, it's, it's working, right? So one of the reasons why I'm here today is because of the work I've done uh, with EM Weekly and with Prepared, Respond, Recover podcasts. And I do want to give a couple of uh, shout-outs here. I want to thank um, my team, uh, John Fontaine, who's running around here. He's our associate producer. Brian Colburn, who's back in Irvine with Sitch Radio, who's uh, working on the live feed. Holly Manioski from uh, Speak and Spark. And, um, oh, yeah, Dan Scott, my, my co-host at times. Um, with their help, we've been able to really explore what emergency management is today and where it's going. We're looking at the trends and lessons learned and, and how we make our... our Emergency management better. But today we're here to talk about leadership and how it can be lonely at the top. These guys will test this in a second. And the pressures of making decisions that impact millions of lives across the country. And also with the added political pressures um, with such a position. Today on stage with me, I have Craig Fugate and Pete Gaynor, which is a great introduction by Paul. You know, and today we're going to explore the challenges and the benefits of what it is to be the emergency manager at the top. So let's give a round of applause for Craig and Pete. So I have a couple of prepared questions here, uh, but if you guys have watched Ian Weekly, you understand that I will definitely go off script here, so we'll have a good conversation. And the way I like to take a look at this, it's like having a cup of coffee with friends that you have and talk about something we're passionate about. So this is what we're having here today, so thank you. All right, so I do have a couple of ones to start off with here. And it's how we want to take it out. It doesn't make a difference. But uh, when you got the tap on the shoulder from the President of the United States, what was that like? What went through your mind when you first got that? It wasn't a tap on the shoulder. I got asked to come up and meet with the new Secretary of Homeland Security. And they wanted me to, it was like a Wednesday, they called me and said, can you be up here tomorrow? I said, no, I'm busy. Well, can you be up here Friday? I said, no, I'm busy. Well, you do understand it's the Secretary of Homeland Security. She wants to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, I have a job. I'm busy. I can come up next Wednesday. And that's how it started. <laughs> that's awesome. How about with you? Yeah, I think I got tapped on the shoulder a, a couple times. And I, you know, I, went to, I went to FEMA to be uh, the deputy uh, at FEMA, not necessarily the, the administrator. And uh, it's a, it's a dynamic world in Washington, D.C., especially the, over the past couple of years. And uh, you know, things changed in a moment. And uh, when, the, when the president asked you to serve, uh, and, and one of the probably the most uh, important roles in government 
uh, in one of the most difficult positions in government, uh, you say yes. You have to say yes, I think so. I agree with you there. You know, one of the things I always think about is like if I ever was in that position and being called into the Oval Office and, and what that really means. Uh, when you, so when you, I'll start with you. when you first walked into the Oval Office for your first time, uh, I'm sure you get used to it, right? What was it like to be in there? So you, you never get used to it, uh, even if you've been in there a uh, hundred times or in the White House. Um, I think uh, as we probably all imagine as kids, you know, what it would be like to uh, be in the White House and be invited to the White House, uh, what it would be like to be in that room that, is, that has no corners, the Oval Office, you know, what it would be like to touch the resolute desk uh, in front of the person who's the most powerful man or woman uh, in the world. And uh, so the first time is surreal. Uh, the second time is, is just as surreal. And I think the last time you go in, uh, it, it really grounds you about what your purpose and role is, uh, in my case as a FEMA administrator, and, and, and who's counting on you uh, to deliver the goods uh, when the nation is at, in crisis. So it's, it's a humbling experience every time you go in, um, uh, but, it, but it, is no, it, it is unlike any place on earth. How about, how about you, Craig? Yeah, it was a room. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, again, every administration is different. So when we were briefing the president, if it was pretty much briefing the president, we did in the sit room. So we weren't necessarily the Oval Office in the Obama administration. If you're in the Oval Office, it's mainly ceremonial. There's probably a photo op, um, and uh, I'm probably the only guy that's ever been, been in there to brief. We're probably. <laughs> um, I don't think we said we're supposed to. Uh, I'm probably the only person that actually went and briefed the president in the Oval Office. And you got to understand, there's all this protocol where you sit, uh, yeah. uh, where you sit, and stuff like that. And so, if you've ever seen the White House and you see the president, the chair next is reserved for the vice president or the senior ranking person. So generally, I'm not a secretary, so when I would go in there, I'd be on the couch or standing up in the back or something like that. So last time I briefed the president was during Hurricane Matthew. Uh, I was sitting in the vice president's seat. My secretary, Jay Johnson, the secretary of Homeland Security, was sitting on the couch, which that, that was a, a challenge. And I was wearing khakis, a FEMA logo shirt, and a windbreaker. No tie. And after we got through the briefing, I didn't think anything about it, I, there, we started getting calls what the blank was the administrator in there? Why wasn't he wearing a suit? And it was coming from an office. And they were like, why wasn't he wearing a suit? And he says, you don't understand. He was told never wear a suit in the White House during an activation. So I'm probably the only person that sat there in khakis, a FEMA shirt, a FEMA blazer, a uh, polo shirt, and a, a windbreaker to brief the president and the Oval Office. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. You know what? Hey, I know we're having some uh, technical difficulties, but we're emergency managers, so I know we're working on it fine, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it through this. Um, you know, kind of going back with the Oval Office and, and briefing the president, you know, what is it to speak truth to power, especially when it comes into when we're looking at a significant event that's occurring in the nation? Um, I know there's political pressures that go on there, but what is it to speak truth to power? We'll start with yeah, so it's uh, you know it's it's all about it's all about the mission. It's it's about the people that are at risk, disaster survivors. It's about your integrity. Uh, it's about doing the right thing every time, uh, no matter 
um, uh, the circumstances or the politics that surround it uh, or the people that may tell you to do one thing or another. It really is about, uh, you know, for me, is about doing the right thing in, in the right moment. And it may be, and I think, you know, as emergency managers, um, you know, whether in my uh, start as a local emergency manager or a state emergency manager, you know, we don't deliver good news. We're not the good news people. We're the bad news people. Uh, it's, it's, you know, something is broken or something's about to break. Uh, there's lives at risk. And so what we, what we recommend to leaders is, are, are sometimes hard choices. And in, in some cases, uh, some leaders take that better than others. Uh, but your role, that your, your, your uh, mission is to speak the truth no matter what. Uh, and you may put yourself at jeopardy, but that is that goes with the job. And if you're not ready to to do it, uh, then you probably shouldn't have that job. I never really it was never really an issue for me. I, my job's to tell them what they need to know, not what they want to hear. <clears throat> my biggest problem was never the president. Um, it was always OMB mm. because they were always worried about the cost implications of what we were proposing. Uh, generally, with POTUS, it was you briefed them. Um, and I would say 99% of the time, it was briefed to president, and he says, okay, what do you need from me? And so I got more pushback from OMB and others. Uh, and Beth Zimmerman's in the crowd, she'll, she'll, she's got some colorful stories about this. We made a decision after the Tuscaloosa tornadoes that you couldn't separate private property from public debris. It was too scattered. We mm -hmm. said, we got to clear everything. And the president agreed. OMB did. And then they said, you'll never do that again. 30 days later, we had Joplin. And I said, we got to clear it. And OMB told my staff, no, we're not approving it. I'm like, I didn't realize OMB was written into the Stafford Act. So POTUS said, do you need anything from me? And I said, well, I'm having a conversation with OMB. He calls over one of the uh, folks at National Security Council, Richard Reed, and he says, tell OMB, uh, fix it. And we got it done. So to me, it was never about the politics. I was aware of it. But I was fortunate both working for Governor Jeb Bush, uh, Charlie Chris, and for uh, uh, President Obama is what tell them what they need to know, not what they want to hear. Let's talk about politics for a second because I think you know we've all, all every level uh, have felt this the politics of, of of a disaster for specifically. How, can we take politics out of emergency management? Nah, no, it's it's built in. And and this is where I really chastise my my compatriots in emergency management says we need to keep the amateurs out and let the professional run things. I'm like, really? We're a nation of laws. Find me one statute that empowers the emergency authorities to declare emergencies, order evacuations, and the majority of the authorities we have in the appointed officials. Even FEMA can't declare a disaster. It's always in the elected leadership. So if you say you want to divorce politics from the disaster, it's like, really? All of your authorities are based upon the elected leadership. How do we talk about FEMA specifically for here a second? Consider the fact I got both of you here on the stage with me. And one of the things I think the public sees is FEMA as being, you know, the, uh, the answer. Right. Once FEMA coming, uh, we, we saw this at Katrina. Uh, we've seen it in many of the major hurricanes um, in, in California state where I live. We talk about it when the, when the fires come through. And, and how do we get the public to understand that FEMA is not coming in with gear and equipment and things and people to, to, to fix the problem, that it is truly a local disaster? FEMA writes big checks. I mean, if you think about it, that's what everybody really, that's what the elected officials really want, 
And in most disasters, I, I explain to people, FEMA writes checks. We're a grant agency. Most of the, most of the disasters declare is really as, as a check writing operation. And the few times we actually do, it's mobilizing, coordinating the rest of the federal family. FEMA's, you know, finite. We're like about 5,000 permanent workforce, and then whatever we have in cores is still small compared to the federal families. But I, I, one of the things I ran into when we, in the post-Katrina era was FEMA was trying so hard to recover from Katrina that in many cases they were out there talking about what they were doing. And I'm like, let's really talk about what our partners are doing. And it's like FCOs. I told it, federal coordinating officers, you know, when there's a briefing, you need to be standing behind the governor uh, and silent unless the governor wants to ask you a question. And we had actually had where it was kind of reversed. We, there was so much pressure that a lot of times the FCOs felt compelled to actually step on the governor's message to get out the federal message. And I'm like, we're in support. And so we need to be visibly, but also how we communicate. Talk about our partners. Talk about the team. And let our actions speak for FEMA. And, and again, coming out of Katrina, that was a different tone than what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think one of the things that my, one of my pet peeves is going around talking to locals and states, tribes and territories, and when you ask them, you know, theoretically, you know, what's your plan for dealing with a disaster or something, um, uh, you know, that, you, that you're, you're concerned about, uh, you know, if someone said to me, well, my plan, my plan is to wait till FEMA gets here, that was, that was a bad plan, right? So, and I think demonstrated... Uh, during COVID is that everyone has, everyone has a role. It can't be uh, FEMA because, you know, uh, we, we solve a lot of problems, but we can't solve all the problems. It takes uh, all of government at every level to solve some of these difficult problems. And, and, and again, look at COVID. Uh, everyone has a, a role in that. Everyone needs to uh, own up to what they own uh, in responding to a, to a, a disaster or a, a crisis. Um, you know, we, we, we probably have to do a, a, a better job, um, you know, investing in, you know, we spent, we spent a lot of money. Uh, we don't spend enough money on preparedness. Uh, we, we're spending more money on pre-disaster uh, investments, uh, mitigation, brick, all those kind of things. And we need to do more of that to make sure that we're more uh, resilient, more ready. But it, it, it is all of government affair. Uh, it's all of community, whole of community effort uh, the whole way. Uh, in some cases, government doesn't have enough, right, and will not have enough. And now you have to make decisions about uh, priorities, like who needs to get it the, the most. And that's one thing you want to avoid, right? So again, uh, it takes everyone, you know, rowing in the same d direction to have a good result or, or to avoid a, uh, uh, you know, a horrific result. Let's talk about COVID for a second, because I, I wasn't trying to avoid that question, but I, I know we're kind of all COVIDed out a little bit, but. Early on in, in the crisis, we've heard all these people coming in front of the camera, political appointees, political elected officials, standing up and saying, oh, we weren't prepared. We never knew this could happen. And, and I had to call BS on that a little bit because most of us, I can't say all, right, had pandemic flu. Now, we didn't call it COVID, obviously. We didn't call it whatever. We called it pandemic, pandemic flu. We learned the history and the lessons that happened in 1918. We understood that it could happen again. We had practice with SARS and MERS and these other events that occurred across the, the globe that never really got to. A swine flu, for instance, got close. So why do you think the general population, the general people who are out there in front of cameras saying we'd never had an idea this was going to come? Well, I mean, where'd that come from? Uh I, I think you know. I think part of the difficulty in getting people to bite on preparedness in general is the belief that most of us 
uh, you know, not in the business, right? Most of us, uh, you know, American taxpayers believe it, it won't happen to me. I only see it happening on TV, right? And, or it's someone uh, uh, that is, is, is talking about something that's so outlandish, I can't wrap my head around it, right? So when it happens, um, it, you know, it changes, it changes the whole dynamic. And, and, I, and, I, and, and again, I think it's about, um, uh, you know, how we get you know, expectations from the American public about uh, what to expect, uh, big and small, uh, about the things that threaten you every day. We all have to embrace that. And when you don't embrace it, you don't get a good, you don't get a good result in the end. So we, we, we have some work to do. I, I think COVID is an opportunity to cash in on some of that. Uh, uh, things that we've learned, hot, the hard, hard things that we've learned uh, in a national response. Um, but, you know, I think as Americans, we have short, short memories. Absolutely. What do you think, Craig? Well, I, I remember after Katrina, uh, members of that administration were saying this was an unforeseen disaster. And I sent one of them a copy of the uh, Popular Science uh, 2005 May issue, which was out before Katrina, talking about a catastrophic you know, the, all these kind of disasters of which New Orleans was listed. Uh, for the transition of the administrations, and this was something the Bush administration did for the Obama administration. They had a series of tabletop exercises, and we did side-by-side side where they brought in the incoming nominees with the current incumbents to all the key cabinet positions and went through a series of disasters, national crisis, uh, making sure the team coming in was ready, because on day one, you're it. And as part of that, we did a pandemic exercise. So we did an exercise on a pandemic. We had identified COVIDs and influenzas as the two primary threats. Uh, we had done a lot of exercises within the administration, and we had already identified that personal protective equipment uh, and supply chains were going to be a, a key point of failure and would likely require implementation of the Defense Production Act early in these events. So, you know, when people said, well, this was unforeseen, wasn't happening, didn't know it could happen. I'm like, well, I was there. We did the exercise. Uh, we talked about this. Uh, internally, we still were wrestling with uh, supply chain issues and how much we had built a just-in-time, what I like to say is uh, efficiency is the enemy of resiliency. We'd built a very efficient supply chain that wasn't going to be resilient in a pandemic. Right. I mean, obviously, we're going through supply chain issues today, you know, off the coast of California, where I live, you know, we see ships just hanging out there, and it's really causing some other issues. And I keep thinking if we have another large scale disaster within the next few months that we're going to be we're going to be hurting on that. And uh, I don't know what the solution is. So that's, yeah. that's a deep. You know, I, I think part of it is and uh, having worked closely with DOD and having them send down some experts in the DOD military supply chain. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, DOD understands their supply chain from the beginning to the end and everything, 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 right? They, they have it locked down. So, so when you need to produce a bullet, right, you're not, you know, you, you have it ready to go. Uh, I, I think we need on the, on the civilian public safety side, we need to understand the supply chain. I'm not sure as a nation, as a government, uh, non-DOD, I don't think we understand uh, all the things that we uh, are counting on. I mean, you know, whether it be masks or needles uh, when you talk about COVID or glass for, for uh, you know, the vials for vaccine, all those kind of things, you know, we've, we've taken for granted. But we need to really invest in understanding uh, the, the public safety civilian supply chain. Uh, and it won't be a pandemic next. It'll be something else that stresses supply chain. So what are those key items that we, we should 
maybe we have to produce them in the U.S. Maybe we have to have uh, standing contracts to, to have lines of uh, production ready to go uh, or expand production in the U.S. Uh, but we, we really have a ways to go to understand uh, what are all those critical items that we would rely on and the next thing that maybe we don't know exactly what it is? Well, you know, we looked at the national strategic stockpile, right? And I remember when we broke open the, the cases when this when COVID first popped out, everybody's like, oh, the masks are falling apart because and, and the, the medications are now expired and, and all these things. And, and when, I, when I looked at this, I said, no one's maintaining this. So no one took ownership of that particular thing. What do we do? Like, how do we... In, if we're doing this again, if we're going to say, okay, let's let's get some stockpiles up, how do we know who's rotating this through? Who's who's doing the the ownership of that? Like, what process has to be placed so that doesn't happen again, where these things are just dying on the shelf? Yeah, I, you know, so the you know, the uh, strategic national stockpile not designed for a pan, like a pandemic like we had. It's designed for some uh, lesser event like an anthrax attack in a couple you know uh, cities in the U.S. That's kind of what it's designed for. Um, you know, I, I, again, we have to we have to make investments ahead of time. If we, if we know it's coming, right? We're smart enough to tr to exercise and train to it. We know it's coming. We need to make investments in it. But again, these investments are at uh, at odds with other things that maybe we need to invest in as a nation. Maybe have a higher priority, and they get put to the they get put to the the uh, the back of the stove, right? Sure. So we have to again our lessons learned in COVID. We have to take those and push them forward, so we don't repeat this, the the, uh, the sins of the past, right? We have to learn from these from these hard lessons, uh, you know, uh, through uh, the pain and suffering, the death of COVID. Uh, let's let's really uh, up our game and make inv investments where it counts. Most people don't like to talk about this because this is really in the weeds budget stuff, but as much as the stockpiles weren't maintained, I think was a direct consequences of the sequestration on the budget. Budgets were cut, agencies were furloughing staff, the funding for the reoccurring maintenance, uh, restocking was decreased, uh, readiness across the board was impacted. And the strategy was, we hope we won't need it. Fair. Well, you, you, you're gonna have to invite the, the the private sector to do it because you can't you can't store all the stuff that you need for every event. So you're gonna have to figure out a way to involve the private sector, rotate stocks, right? All those kind of things. Have contracts ready, um, but it's it's just not uh, you know it, somebody has to lead this effort. I'm not sure who that is yet. They haven't stepped up. And there was a lot of talk about supply chain resilience, um, but we need to get. Uh, and I know they're making some efforts on it, but we really need to get uh, up our game on, on the whole supply chain because it, it will be the thing that uh, will uh, be the linchpin in the next response. Right. So, <coughs> excuse me. so all wars are won and, and lost on supply chain, right? And so same thing with what we're doing here. All disasters are, are, are won or lost on supply chain, right? Well, I mean, you know, it's, you know, typically FEMA responds to a natural disaster uh, and let's just pick a hurricane on the Gulf Coast, and it's impacted on you know, a couple community, a couple communities, a couple parishes. Maybe it's a state, and you know you have an abundance of resources to, from around the country, uh, from what you own at FEMA, from what your partners have, uh, what you mission assign other uh, agencies to deliver to the the place that's impacted. There's no question about how much we can deliver to a to a finite, uh, unique area when it comes to disaster. Right? We're really good at that. But when it comes to a national disaster, uh, 
you know, we're not, we don't have enough resources. And I, from, the, from the COVID point of view, we're, we're, we're not managing resources, we're managing lack of resources. Right. It's, it's a different, you have to wrap your head around that, right? And we're not tolerant as a nation uh, when we say, no, you can't get it because you're not on the top of the list or you're not a priority, right? People are not used to that. But it's the price you'll have to pay for, uh, you know, uh, not making the proper investments to make sure you don't repeat the sins. And one of the things Pete said, I, I think there are other threats, and this is where the emergency management model has to adapt and grow. We've always been an organization that we had a focused, geographically defined area for disaster, and we could just move the resources from the other areas in. Right. But as we saw on 9-11, it froze assets across the country because nobody was sure the attacks were over. As we saw in COVID, it froze assets because it was hitting areas. And now do you send stuff or you pull back? There are other threats that have similar characteristics. Cyber attacks of national significance. They're not going to be a geographically focused area. And so I think that's one thing emergency management has to grow and evolve to is it's no longer just going to be mutual aid and bringing everything in. As Pete says, it's going to be doing the triage. Who gets what, but more importantly, who doesn't get something? based upon what is available on a national competition for resources. And national priorities will often be in conflict with local and state priorities. Uh, just, to, just a little anecdote. So, uh, you know, during COVID, we, we were looking at, like, how much money had we invested in, in you know, uh, non-disaster grants? So, you know, the SHIZIP grants and EMPG on the 32 core capabilities. And let's see where uh, communities across the country invested, right? So all the things that we know and love, a uh, high, high, high investment. And then towards the bottom, the things that virtually no one invests in or very minimal are things like supply chain, supply chain security, right? You know, we, we, that's a, that's a choice that we made. And, and people did it because it's hard to understand, right? It's hard to understand the supply chain where, uh, you know, the, all the things that you can go get in a moment's notice, where they all come from, where they're derived from, who has a contract, uh, to, to produce those in the United States. And if, you, if it's not produced in the United States, where do you get it overseas? So again, we, you know, I, I'm a, I have a, you know, hard over, especially after COVID, about really understanding the supply chain. Uh, and I think emergency managers really have to embrace. They, they're going to have to. They're going to have to understand that because who does the nation turn to in a national disaster, whether it's local, state, or federal? They turn to. They turn to emergency managers. There's no. There's no one else to solve your problem other than emergency managers. So it's in our best interest. Uh, and again, when it comes to supply chain, we, ha we have to really embrace and understand that. So both of you started off locally, you know, as a local emergency manager. And why are you seeing, well, I'll say why you're seeing, because it's been there for a long time. We've seen this, like, idea of bringing a collateral duty emergency manager, a guy who, or a gal who doesn't have the aptitude nor the attitude uh, necessary to be that person, but maybe they got hurt in the job, and so they stuck them in the emergency management position, or it's a, 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 you know, you're promoting up the chain um, in the lights and science. Why, are, why do cities and, or local governments in, in general um, accept that as being emergency management when it truly isn't? They haven't had a big disaster. They don't have the money, and they hope it won't happen. You know, so so emergency managers is part of the public safety family. Uh, you know, firefighters have to be certified, right? They have to go to school. They have to have a certain amount of hours. Police officers have to go to school. They have to be accredited. They have to have a certain amount of hours. Uh, uh, health officials, right, they have to be certified. But emergency managers, we ha we haven't got there yet. I think we're we're still an immature 
profession, right? Not as you know mature as you, if you think about fire department, firefighters. Uh, we have a we have a ways to go, but but look back at COVID and all the things that emergency managers did across the country uh, for their residents. Uh, we should have a program that makes sure that we have the, the the best and the brightest emergency managers that know the business, right? And I know we're making headway on that, but we really need, again, to invest in it. It is not an afterthought, right? And I think to Craig's point, if it's an afterthought, then uh, if you're an elected leader, you will suffer the consequences, your citizens will suffer the consequence. Uh, so again, it's all in our best interest to make sure that, uh, you know, we invest in the future of uh, emergency management, right? Let's, 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 again, take that next big step on all the things that we learn and make sure that we're ready for the next thing and have the most talented uh, uh, people that we can find across the nation doing the most important job in a crisis, and that's as an emergency manager, whether you're at FEMA or you're in a local tribe or territory or, or city or town. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about the, their role as an emergency manager, their emergency services coordinator is what their title is. And they told me that during a disaster, this is California again, most of my experience is California, guys, that's what you can hear about. Um, and it's uh, during the fire, they get moved from being this emergency services coordinator position, and when they're in the EOC, they become the EOC manager as their title, which is basically making coffee, making sure the copy machines are running, and stuff like this. They really get pulled out of that decision-making model. I guess that's their city's way they're doing it. How do we make emergency management to where they are an integral part of the decision-making process throughout the beginning to the end? Go ahead, Gray. Yeah, I, all my career, you know, people said, you got to make me relevant. You got to tell my uh, city that I'm important. And I'm like, really? I got to tell them you're important? And that tells me there's a problem. Um, I think too often people think, well, I'm an emergency manager. They ought to come to me and defer to me because I'm an emergency manager. I'm like, why? Are you adding value to what they do? Do you make their job easier? Do you take a load off of them? Do they see any real relevance of doing this or are you just somebody else they're going to have to uh, you know, deal with? So you know, I, I tell emergency managers, says, look, if you're not adding value, nobody's, you can write all the plans and, and design it any way you want to. What you got to do is convince and work with the agencies and show them you can take a load off of them. You can help them be more successful by narrowing down what they're dealing with by focusing on their core competencies and handing off stuff to the rest of the team. And if you really think about it, that EOC manager is actually like a baseball manager, getting the right players in the right positions to run the plays and be successful. And it doesn't mean the lead agency needs to do everything. It means the lead agency needs to do what they're best at. And, and if you look at COVID, that's what I think was part of the challenge. We had built a model that responded to health outbreaks with health at the center and emergency managers integrated at various levels. But Pete knows at FEMA, CDC would usually keep us at arm's length. And it was like, we were not trying to take over guys, but we bring a lot of resources and capability tables so you could focus on what you're best at and let us do a lot of the things that we have resources to do for you. And I think that's the challenge, is getting people to see us as we're the honest brokers, we're not trying to be in charge, we're not trying to tell you how to do your job, but why do you have to be everything to everybody when the rest of the team here can help make you successful and allow you to narrow your focus down to the things that are core competencies? Mm -hmm. Because quite honestly, if it's really bad, why are your people running around doing stuff that's not tied to putting the fire out? Right. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. It's value added, and, I, and I've been all the, at all those levels where uh, uh, so sometimes it's value added and sometimes it's, it's at odds. And it really is, I think, as an emergency manager, understanding the, and I'll, and I'll just pick on the, you know, public safety kind of, 
universe here. It, it, it's a clash of cultures, right? You know, the, the police culture, right? Policemen, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, if you're, you know, a patrolman, a patrolwoman, you spend the, the majority of your life in a car making decisions for yourself, right? Very rarely do you, uh, you know, call for help or, or uh, consult with a group of people about the decision you're going to make. You're, you're a decision maker on the spot. You're solving problems on the spot. If you're a firefighter, right, you probably spend the most of your career with five or six other firefighters in the station house. You do everything as a team, right? It's all coordinated. Everyone knows each other's job. You live together, right? You cook together. You eat together. Uh, if you're a public health, uh, you know, uh, uh, professional, right? It's a whole, it's a whole different kind of culture. So if you don't understand those cultures and you don't know where you fit in as emergency manager, right? The emergency management culture is not the police culture. It's not the firefighter culture and it's not the public health culture. It's our own culture. So if you understand where you fit in, then you'll be value added. And I think that's sometimes I think that's tough for emergency managers. You know, they, sometimes I think they think they're firefighters or they think they're police officers or they think they're what, right? It's not. It's a unique skill set. Uh, it's, it's, it's the nation's problem solvers. And if you don't understand those cultures, you will have a rough road in demonstrating your value. Do you think emergency managers then should have a better understanding of, say, project management than, you know, fire tactics? I mean, I, you know, I think emergency managers have to have a wide skill set, right? Uh, because, you know, the thing you plan for, you know, today may not be the thing that you execute tomorrow, right? So I think project management is, is key. Uh, but there's no, you know, whether it's project management or it's, you know, decision making in crisis, leadership training, you know, where is, you know, how are we molding tomorrow's emergency managers, right? Where are we doing that? And back to my, like, accreditation point, how are we making sure that we, we develop the profession, uh, in, into the product that we all want, the, the product that we are gonna need in the future, right? So whether that future is tomorrow or it's in five years, what are we doing to make sure that we're, we, we've invested in all that? Uh, we're not, we're not there yet. We have a, we have a ways to go. You know, I, my, I have, I had many pet peeves at, at FEMA. I'm sure Craig did the same way. It's like, how do we do recruiting at FEMA? We don't really do recruiting at FEMA. You know how employees come to FEMA? And I'm sure this happens to other, uh, emergency manage, uh, management agencies across the country. They come because they love the mission. They find us because they, what they want to do, uh, help, uh, disaster survivors in the, in their time of need. That's how we get people. But that's no way to run a, business and our business is emergency management. You know, we need to, we need to be out there recruiting the best people we can and have a pipeline to train them into the product that we want them to be. So again, we, we have a ways to go. Uh, and, and I, I hope we're chipping away at it. I always kind of ask this question when people say, you know, what is emergency management? And most emergency managers are out. Well, it's the four phases of emergency management, and all this other stuff. I'm like, that's process. What do you do? And I'm like, Essentially, the, the elevator speech I give people, emergency management's when the org charter government won't work. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do. And part of that is building teams. And people say, well, that's writing a plan. I'm like, that's process and it's documentation. And as Eisenhower, President Eisenhower say, uh, you know, plans are worthless. Planning is priceless. Why? It's the team you build. So when I talk about an EOC and the role of the EOC manager and the local emergency managers, did you build a problem-solving engine or do you have a collection of people that could have done what they were doing sitting in their office? You know, when you say you activated the EOC, did you get decision makers or did you get the people they could spare? Mm. But that's really, I think, we, we talk so much about the process, we forget 
Look, if the org charter government can solve this based upon the normal data organizations, you don't need emergency management. It's when that system's going to fail. And the problem is too many people don't understand the difference between an emergency and a disaster and think that emergencies, the things you do, will scale up. And this happens in a lot of the practitioner world is they think their systems will scale up. And they will to a point, but when they fail, they tend to fail catastrophically. And then the question is, now what do we do? And I'm like, that's emergency management. And hopefully we knew what to do before that point failed, and we were activated before we allowed our agencies to fail. And we recognized that everybody can't do everything, and we maximized our resources, and we knew those points of failure. But we built a team to deal with the stuff we knew could happen, but more importantly, the stuff nobody ever thought could happen. But if you think about a plan, the plan's only the documentation of the team you built. And the team will only be as strong as the engagement of the various parts of that government, your, your NGOs, your private sector, and how well you've exercised and trained that team. You know, I'll defer to Pete in the Marine Corps. They don't prepare to lose. They don't prepare for what they're capable of. They prepare for what their adversary could do. Right. They exercise to failure. And we don't in many cases. And I think that's our core competencies we really get across. It's not the plan you wrote. It's the team you built. It's the quality of the decision-making and the stress you put in others so they can now operate in high-stress environments with little or no time, not only the stuff they expected and knew, but more importantly, the stuff they never thought could happen. And as a team, work to resolve that. You know, when you do exercise and training, and I've noticed this across the board, that we always, after done, right, pat everybody on the back, say, did, did such a great job, and we're almost afraid to, I don't want to say afraid, it's probably not, but we're, maybe in this culture today, we don't want to give people that idea saying, hey, Pete, you really blew it here, this is how we can, how we can grow. It just seems like everything gets pat on the back. And um, yeah, I remember doing an after-action report uh, for an exercise that we did, and I put some uh, some changes in there, and I was told, hey, you need to take those out because we have to make those changes if it's in the after action report. You know, and it seems to be a cultural thing. Why is that? Why are we afraid to practice to fail? Well, I mean, because we make us look bad, right? So, so my, you know, my, uh, you know, when we did an exercise, if somebody came back with the after action report, and there was a couple little, you know, down arrows about what we did, and the majority was was up arrows. I call that a failure, right? Yeah. I mean, I I want to test things like I want you to break it, wreck it, right, destroy it, like you need to, right, and not be afraid of repercussions from the boss about how miserable the exercise ended and how you exposed all the warts of the agency. And, you know, you put us at risk for funding and there'll be an, a newspaper article about how incompetent we are as, you know, whatever entity we are. I mean, I think that's part of your job, right? Your, your job is not to get an A, right? Your job is to figure out you know, how to prevent getting an F, right? And if you don't test those systems uh, and, and break them or stress them and maybe and maybe you stress them and, and, and it works wonderfully. OK, good. But uh, I'm with you. If, if, if everything's a pat on the back, then uh, I think I need a new exercise team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Give everybody a participation trophy and yeah. we learn nothing. Um, it, it's sort of like the lessons learned, as somebody better said, they're not really lessons learned. They're lessons observed because we're doing the same thing wrong every time. <laughs> um, but I, I found just a simple tr 
turn of phrase may help. Um, if you've ever done a hot wash and somebody says, give me three ups or three downs, uh, there may be one or two people that are obnoxious enough to give a lot of pretty good downs, but most everybody else is like, yeah, it was good. Any downs? Uh, not really. I'm like, so ask a different question. Don't ask three things that went wrong. Ask three things you do differently next time. Because this is the key thing. If you do what you're going to do anyway after the exercise, it didn't accomplish anything. And Pete's right. You've got to stress the system to find out where the friction is going to occur, where things will break. where what. Because here's, here's to me is the key thing that when you recognize this, it puns your head, is when you recognize what you're doing won't work and you've got to do something different. And getting an exercise to a point where it forces that, that the standard pat answers, we got that, we got that, just don't work anymore. And now rather than criticizing somebody and saying, well, that was wrong, is going, okay, based upon what we're seeing, what will we do differently next time? And get people out of this defensive mode because bureaucracies hate change. They hate threats. And, and it's not speaking to the individuals, just organizationally. They hate to be challenged uh, because they've optimized their system based upon reoccurring events that they've gotten good at. And now you're stressing that system. But, the, you know, Katrina's uh, a great example of this. Hurricane Pam, the exercise that was run before that, was actually worse than the hurricane itself. Yet in that exercise, every time they got to the hard to do, somebody said, we got that, with the theory that their existing systems would always scale up. And by the rec time they recognized what they were doing wasn't going to work, they already lost the first 72 hours of that response. Right. I, and, I, and I think that, you know, if, if every exercise has to be, uh, you know, a win, then you're really not empowering the people that will make it count during a, a disaster. You'll make them risk adverse. And in a disaster, in a response, right, uh, and I'm not saying, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we're not going to worry about risk at all. We, we should be conscious of it all. But you want people to take risk because it matters, right? If big problems matter and you need people that are not afraid to fail to take that, that, that uh, action uh, uh, and, and be, be afraid to fail, right? They, if they're afraid to fail, they'll never take the action. And maybe that's the thing that, that you needed to happen in the, in the moment in time to change the direction of the disaster, right? So again, it goes back to like how you train in, in, in exercises, right? So it's all, it's all tied together in, in, in the actual response. So again, uh, don't be afraid to fail. John, how are we doing on time? Good, okay. Um, Going back on, on the training exercise, how do we get senior elected officials at the local government wise, right? Maybe even the state government, uh, to be involved um, in in this process? Because it seems like they would never have time. They'll send you know a, a second or a third to sit in for them during that time. But when it when it comes down to actually game day, uh, they, they seem to be lost for a little bit. How do we get them to be involved in the training exercises? Well, the best example I know is, you know, if you're the emergency manager, you're probably multiple layers down below that person trying to get to them and saying we're relevant and you need to take this seriously. It's probably not what they ran on. I'm, very few people run on a platform of fixing the emergency management program, right? Uh, but we have found, uh, I'll, I'll speak to the states, is the National Governance Association has a very good program where they bring in emergency managers, they bring in FEMA, and they bring in governors who have dealt with disasters. And their first message to governors are, I don't care what your agenda is, a badly run disaster will upset any plans you had for the rest of your administration. <laughs> a well-run disaster will give you a boost to all of your other initiatives. 
And they and they tell them, I said, this is like the day you get sworn in, two weeks later, you have a bad disaster. Governor John Bell Edwards of Louisiana was sworn in under a disaster response and a request for a FEMA disaster declaration. So he didn't even get the first week. So <laughs> that's, I think that, I think, you know, mayors in the north uh, and northern states have run into this. Uh, you don't plow after a snow event. You know, you, you don't get reelected. Yep. But I found that actually working through their associations and partnering, and maybe this is something that, you know, the associations like the International Association of Emergency Managers, you're president of one of those regions, aren't you? I am, sir. Is maybe reaching out to like the International City Emergency, you know, the, emerg the, the International or the Association of the, the uh, County and City Managers and talking to them and making sure that they have programs and tools to brief incoming elected officials. Uh, but governors, the National Governors Association, they, they make that clear to every governor coming in. Your agenda will be set by your disaster, and it may be not the one you were prepared for or thought you were prepared for, and it will set the tone for the rest of your administration. Yeah, so I, I always took great, great pride in uh, whether I got a new governor or a new mayor uh, uh, about, and again, I, NGA has a great uh, program to, uh, to train new governors about what could happen. Uh, but in the practical level, you know, you, you take that new governor, uh, for example, and you devise a scenario where maybe it's unwinnable, right? That there's really no answer to this scenario. And, and if you get the, if you get the governor to start sweating about what decision do I make, then you're on the right track, right? So again, uh, don't, don't, there's no softballs in this game. You gotta give them really hard things. And I think once you, once you pose a, a significant decision-making problem to an elected leader, right? One that is not clear-cut, uh, that can go both ways, to, and, and they start sweating. Then they start to pay attention, right? Uh, and then they'll, I think, back to the value. Then they'll see, oh, I, I need this team of problem solvers called emergency managers to help me, uh, whether it's in a national disaster or it's in a pandemic or it's for the next thing we haven't contemplated, contemplated yet. Uh, but uh, so make them sweat. So Brock Long talked about the idea of culture preparedness, right? And sweeping across the nation down to the local level. Um, how does a local emergency manager like really embrace that and push that to his community? Because, I mean, we're seeing this, you know, we go through the SERP programs, we've seen, you know, the ready.govs and things like this. But if you take a last poll that was done on preparedness, uh, it was something like 10% of the population felt that they're prepared for a disaster. Uh, what can we do as emergency managers to really push that down? Yeah, you know, this is this has been a hard thing, I think, for for a while now is is to get people to understand preparedness and the importance of preparedness. Uh, and and I always challenge the staff to, hey, listen, we need a uh, click it or ticket program. Uh, only you can stop uh, uh, wildfires, right? All those kind of things that we grew up with uh, that we all remember. Uh, to make an impact on preparedness. And I'm not sure we've gotten there yet, right? I think we really need to think hard and long and invest some money in about what's that thing that's going to make people think about, you know, taking one action to do preparedness today or making their family more prepared that, that sticks with them. And I think it's through kids, right? Kids make that, make those things stick. So, uh, I know there's been, there was the STEP program, I think was a great effort to, to do some of those things, but, I think we really need a national kind of uh, of uh, initiative to find that next thing that's going to make people say, oh, yeah, we need to, you know, I need to take action because uh, I understand what preparedness means to me and my family. Until you, until you 
if you don't get there, I'm not sure how, how you, you know, get national preparedness to stick with everyone. I don't think it's possible. We've been doing this for decades, and we don't make a scratch. And I think part of it is we try to do this as parents speaking to a child. You need to be prepared. You need to have a plan. You need to do this. It's like, how many people think about disasters? It's not in their day-to-day. And I think our challenge has been we've tried to make this a separate thing they got to do. And if you talk to most people, who's got time for this? And if they don't perceive a threat, they're not going to do it. So I think where we have seen some success is building it into more daily activities, things that help them out day to day and things that they do incrementally that are not like go put a disaster kit together and go spend a couple hundred bucks if you buy everything new. Um, And one of the simplest things I think is just getting people to have a family communication plan. You know, make sure you got all the contacts and social media and everything else, because if the if the phones are busy and you got a text, you have everybody's number you can text to. And that's a low impact, easy thing to do. And it's actually pretty handy day to day for a lot of other stuff. But we've got to lower the barrier and quit saying you're only prepared if you've checked off everything on our list. And we need to start having a conversation versus talking at people like we're a parent speaking to a child and directing their activities and expect them to comply. So one of the subjects that I know you love, national flood insurance. Right. Right. So I had a question that came from um, the Ian Weekly Facebook group, and they wanted me to ask you specifically about could we change the idea of the national flood insurance to a national disaster insurance, which would cover everything? No, that would be a horrible idea. First problem with flood insurance is it's not accurately priced. FEMA's trying to do this with risk 2.0, and we've got members of Congress throwing their hands in the air. Until you price risk for what it costs, we're not going to change behavior. And I like to tell people, the climate has changed. We haven't. And pricing risk appropriately is the best way to change the profiles of communities versus subsidizing risk to encourage further development and growth in high-risk areas. If it was up to me, first thing is everybody needs to buy flood insurance. And don't believe anything about you don't live in a flood zone. If you want to talk about national resiliency, you want to build resiliency today without building anything. It's just get better uptake of flood insurance because outside the special flood risk area, we have the greatest uninsured risk that's growing exponentially from extreme rainfall events. And then the second thing is we ought to stop writing flood insurance for any new construction and basically tell folks, if you want to buy flood insurance, get it from the private sector. And if they want to insure it, why are you building there the way you're building it? Why is the taxpayer underwriting it? But make no mistake, the more you subsidize risk through the taxpayer, the more you'll delay the hard and painful choices that have to be made about adapting to the changes that are occurring. And people hate using market pricing. And I'm not totally heartless to, under, to think that there's not financial challenges, but it's much easier to let the private sector price the market and then let the government provide the subsidies to people that are means tested uh, and make the appropriate investments there. But the flood insurance program is not means tested. You can have flood insurance building in, in value areas where people say it's affordable housing. I'm like going, I couldn't afford to live there at any point in my career. Um, but they're getting flood insurance at the same rate that somebody who lives in an inland community that has essentially been brownfield for flood risk is paying for the same type of coverage. Mm. So moving that, that idea of the flood insurance right over to one of the top topics I love to talk about is fire insurance, all right, uh, wildland fire specifically. We're having the issue where um, fire comes ripping through, burns down an entire city, and the insurance companies say, hey, we're in some 
we're not going to be able to pay out. What, how, how do we tell people, hey, go and buy fire insurance, but your fire, your, you know, your insurance company may say, hey, we're insolvent, we're not going to pay out. Well, how about, let's take a step before that, building codes, right? Zoning codes, all those. So, you know, being at the local level, like that's where building codes originate from. So if you have weak building codes and, you know, no matter what the disaster, the next disaster would be, so it's a hurricane or flooding or a fire, uh, you know, maybe those building codes contributed to that, right? So uh, I would say let's let's take one step even before that and encourage strong building codes across the nation, whether it's fire or flooding uh, or surge, uh, to make sure that we don't build and rebuild uh, in the same uh, place that was destroyed a couple of years ago. I mean, I, I think this is part of the problem. You can talk about insurance, but uh, and and I'm, that's part of the solution set. But let's talk about like building codes, right? If 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 you don't have strong building codes, you you will you'll suffer the consequence. Right. Again, how are we doing on time? I don't want to run run over. So we still got time. Or wrap up. Wrap up. All right. Sorry about that. So, uh, like I said, I can sit here. We can talk about this all day. But uh, we do have I do have one more question to ask, and it goes along the idea of the uh, of the political questions, right? Um, you know, when we go, when you go, I shouldn't say we, uh, in front of Congress, um, do they have an understanding of what FEMA really is and what they can do? Uh, depends on the member and how long they've been there. I, I found that I spent more time teaching civics to members of Congress that um, were not in charge the governor is, and I don't care if they are a member of Congress, they can't direct FEMA to go do something unless the governor wants us to do it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so Congress is a, is a special place. Uh, uh, and, and, and again, I think it's all based on personality, and it's based on experience of elected officials. So, um, you know, if, you're a, if you represent a community that's been hit by disasters, you, you understand, as an elected leader, uh, you understand how important FEMA is. Uh, FEMA is a convenient uh, uh, punching bag for a lot of things, uh, and sometimes we deserve it. Uh, most times it's for theater, uh, and you have to sit there and you have to take it. Um, uh, there are some members up there that are great partners that want to help fix the problem, right? Just not, you know, uh, take you out publicly and beat you uh, for the 20-second soundbite. Uh, but there are some really great uh, elected leaders, senators and congressmen and women uh, that really care about making sure that the next disaster, whether it's in their hometown or across the nation, uh, that we did the right thing for the American people, making the right investments, uh, help FEMA navigate regulations and laws, uh, make it stronger, uh, make it simpler, right? Really make it simpler. Don't make it any more complicated than it is. Uh, so they're out there, but, you know, it is, it's, a, it's a special place. Yeah, and again, Todd, I, I've dealt with, uh, as P said, there are some, they, know, they understand the business, they understand FEMA's role, they're very supportive. They're not afraid to hold us accountable, but they want to make it successful. Others, I found, even some of our harshest critics, sometimes it just means I had to go take the flogging and then go sit down with them and have a conversation and try to hear it from their point of view and don't get defensive. I think this was the hardest thing to get people to understand. When you go before Congress, you're dealing with Congress, don't personalize it. Mm. Don't make it an attack on you. Try to listen, because they're angry about something. Something's not getting done. They're getting yelled at by constituents. And you may or may not be the problem. You may or may not be the solution. But listen to them and try to figure out what is driving this and then what potentially you can do. And again, you can agree to disagree, but I think 
part of this was our job, some, and people agree. We had to sit there and take sometimes a lot of public criticism to get to the point and go, okay, now tell me, what is really driving this? And sometimes it turned out FEMA wasn't even the agency that was the issue. Right. It was just FEMA was generic for the disaster response. All right. Toughest question of the day. If you're asked to do it again, would you do it again? No comment. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful answer. Pete. Uh, I, and I, I'm sure maybe you have to buy Craig a beer after for the, for the comment, but uh, it is, FEMA is an incredible uh, agency with incredible uh, dedicated men and women that make the magic happen every day, right? And and they and the magic really doesn't happen in Washington D.C. The magic happens in every corner of the, of uh, America. Uh, the nitty the nitty gritty. So if I had to do it again, I, I would love to do it again with the dedicated men and women of FEMA. Outstanding. Can you put that last slide up, please? Um, up there. Awesome. Hey, as we learned today, you know, uh, leading from the top is not easy. You know, and I want to thank uh, Pete and Craig uh, for being here with me today. Uh, please give them a round of applause again.